0: Perhaps you heard of this Russian Luna 25 spacecraft that spun out of control and crashed into the moon, and interestingly enough, for our purposes here, we got a very interesting comment from Roscosmos chief Yuri Borisov, and of course Roscosmos is the Russian equivalent to NASA who said during an interview with Russia 24 state TV station, and this is Reuters via Mining.com, quote, this is not just about the prestige of the country and the achievement of some geopolitical goals. This is about ensuring defensive capabilities and achieving technological sovereignty. And here is the part I wanted to highlight. Today it is also of a practical value because, of course, the race for the development of the natural resources of the moon has begun and in the future the moon will become a platform for deep space exploration an ideal platform so from what we heard here it seems to me that according to russia through yuri borisov's comments here it seems to me that the two main goals in going to the moon is first the race for the development of natural resources and second as a platform for deep space exploration, an ideal platform. So fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you would think Russia felt that they had enough natural resources, but I guess they're interested in the moon as well. It kind of goes to show it's never enough. And hello and welcome to the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian and And just a couple of final thoughts on this moon exploration business. It got me thinking how similar it is to this deep sea mining situation. There are similar problems because, of course, the ownership of these international bodies are very much in question. I went to this NASA info sheet because they are also talking about mining the moon, and they said according to the 1967 United Nations Outer Space Treaty, no nation can claim ownership of the moon however space law experts question whether the treaty could prevent private ownership there's nothing stopping miners claiming property rights and using the moon as a commercial venture and then they say believe it or not on this infographic the reality is until we get there and fight it out we'll just have to wait and see and that seems to be an analogous problem if not parallel problem to what we see in deep sea mining How do we, in our civilization with our nation states, how do we divvy up, you know, resources that are found in areas that are designated international waters or an international celestial body such as the moon? And it really does bring up the whole tension on, like, if you're zooming out at a thousand years out, if you zoom out you know, a thousand light years away and you're looking at this, you go, well, clearly they need a world government. Clearly they need to just all join up so that they're all on the same team and they stop all this, you know, what would probably seem to someone a thousand light years away, all this ridiculous infighting. And then you teleport back to where we are right now and you think of all the political hurdles towards something like that actually happening, and you just wonder how is this going to sort itself out? because as we we're discussing with Cecilia Jamasmi a few weeks ago in the deep sea mining topic, you know, it's crying out, really, for a kind of international governance of sorts. and we're going to see the same thing in the moon and how those natural resources are divvied up. And you see this tension between the nation-state system, basically where we need to end up, and maybe a lot of you disagree with that, but it seems to me if you take a wide enough expanse, do you really believe the nation-state will be here, should be here, for the next 10,000 years, for the next 50,000 years? I mean, at some point, one would think it should basically be, you know, for lack of a better term, a united nation of sort. And so you just wonder how we get from here to there and humanity being humanity, human nature being human nature. It's hard to be optimistic, isn't it, on how that all works itself out. And one shouldn't laugh because it seems almost inevitable that we are going to take the most difficult way possible, which unfortunately will be violence and bloodshed. One hopes not, one wants to be an optimist, but if we're fighting wars over much simpler things, then how on earth are we going to regulate, basically, international waters, so-called high seas, or celestial bodies like the Moon, and potentially Mars later on? So, just interesting comments there from Roscosmos, chief yuri borisov and i would just like to say like the very first thing he says is natural resources after saying you know this is more than prestige or even geopolitical goals this is natural resources and how to launch into deep space one hopes if you want to put on an optimistic view of this Perhaps, you know, constructively, we can look at deep sea mining as the model. Like, if we can sort it out politically between nations, if we can sort this out in the deep sea, one assumes that you could have a similar kind of outcome or even model or blueprint for the moon. So it all sounds kind of wild to even talk about this, but the reality is, is as Ross Cosmo chief Yuri Borisov said, as NASA has said, mining the moon is basically at the top of the agenda in terms of moon exploration. And the second part is the launch pad into deep space. So we might even laugh about talking about it, but the reality is, is the powers that be, whether in Russia, or in the West, are very much taking this matter seriously, so we might as well as well. So just an interesting comment I wanted to highlight in our late summer show here on the Northern Miner podcast. I'm very pleased with our guest that is on today, Kalen Burrand, who is the founder and director of Young Mining Professionals Arizona. He gave an outstanding interview. He is 22 years old. And as I said in the interview, the mining industry likes to talk about young people a lot. But if we're going to talk about young people, we should have some young people on. And it is a fascinating interview. And if you think that you don't need to listen because this person is 22 years old, I dare you to listen to it. And I think you will learn a thing or two. He is a consultant on artisanal and small-scale mining, which was perhaps the most revelatory and insightful part of the interview. But it was also quite insightful when I asked him, what is it that young people think the establishment, so to speak, in the mining industry, what could the mining industry do better? Kalen had an answer. So a fascinating personality. Really, I mean, obsessed with mining since he was a teenager started working in a mine at 16 years old in the underground doing the labor, now at the University of Arizona doing a PhD, having just graduated with his degree. So a fascinating interview with Kalen Burund of Young Mining Professionals and also an artisanal and small-scale mining consultant. I look forward to having him back. Other than that, if we just turn to the markets here, Briefly, we were talking about bonds last week, and when we look at the bond market here, it just continues to be dramatic. I mean, the U.S. 10-year is looking like the U.K. Gilt was. Now it's at 4.33, the U.S. 10-year Treasury. So yields continue to rise. Let's just take a quick look at where we were last week for context. We were at 4.22, so it continues to climb. So we are up 0.11 at 4.33. And just for context, I looked at the Italy 10-year bond. It's basically the same. It's at 4.348. So U.S. tenure at 4.33, Italy at 4.348. The U.K. guilt 10-year bond is at 4.711%. Now, one of my favorite interpretations of what's happening in the global economy is this death by a thousand cuts idea. I think it was Tommy Thornton on Real Vision a couple of weeks ago. You know, I listened to a ton of financial content and it's really interesting, actually, those things you actually remember and kind of bubble up to the surface. And I found it quite fascinating this recession that he saw coming as a result of what he called a death by a thousand cuts. And what he meant by that was this idea of these high rates over time do more and more damage to people like you hear about it in Canada now with their, you know, relatively short mortgage times. You're starting to hear of people having to sell early because I also listen to those Canadian real estate channels because I find them fascinating. And you're also hearing about Airbnbs that are starting to be discounted in the U.S. Now, we've been hearing this for a while, but there is a growing chorus, and I kind of come back to Tommy Thornton's idea of this death by a thousand cuts. Eventually, these rates, and I'm looking at the U.K. 10-year bond here, the GILT, At 4.711%, as people have to readjust, as people have to begin paying higher rates as their terms come to an end, as people start to really run out of money, at some point, one wonders if something will break. And there is a little bit of complacency out there. We've had rising interest rates now for maybe a year and a half, Going on two years, and we still haven't really felt the crunch. We still haven't really had anything devastating happen. But sometimes nature, after doing nothing for a long time, likes to move fast. And one still wonders, my inner bear is still alive out there. Particularly in the last few weeks, I think a lot of the bears have been given a little bit of oxygen as the rally that we've seen in stocks has finally relaxed a little bit. So a wonderful show ahead for us. A lot of fascinating news stories, which we're about to get to. And other than that, if you want to learn about the Canadian Mining Symposium in London, England, just go to events.northernminer.com. We have Robert Friedland, probably the most asked-for guest in the entire mining industry, Robert Friedland as well as several brilliant leaders from the mining industry. Several companies are going to be presenting there. It's going to be a wonderful event. So that is coming up on October 12th and 13th. It's also going to have Don Lindsay. I will be interviewing Don Lindsay, former CEO of Tech. So it should be a real event in the mining calendar. So if you want to learn about that, go to events.northernminer.com. Dot com. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. Turning to the website, BHPC's China demand bright spots, logs 37% profit drop. This is Reuters via mining.com. So, to translate that headline, BHP is seeing a little bit of optimism on what's going on in China, but their profits have dropped 37%. BHP Group on Tuesday said it was solid growth from some sectors in China as it logged its weakest annual profit since 2020, but added it was too early to assess the impact of Beijing's policy measures on the country's housing market. And remember, Roberta Caselli, the copper expert from Global X ETFs, as well as oil, she made a big deal about the real estate market in China and how important it is to copper and to the commodities market. In an earnings call to reporters, CEO Mike Henry said steel demand from Chinese sectors outside new housing starts, such as infrastructure, green infrastructure, automotive, and property completions, had been, quote, pretty strong. The world's biggest miner, though, was keeping a close eye on how Beijing's policy steps to support housing starts translated into a real-world impact. A recovery in the world's second-largest economy has lost steam due to worsening property slump, weak consumer spending, and tumbling credit growth, adding to the case for authorities to release more policy stimulus. And we have a quote from BHP, quote, in the near term, while the outlook for the developed world is uncertain, We expect China and India to remain relative sources of stability for commodity demand. So more concerns, really, though, at the same time on the global economy. Continuing on, miners face, quote, considerable challenges, end quote, meeting demand from U.S. climate laws, according to a study. This is also Reuters via mining.com. The mining industry faces considerable challenges meeting larger-than-expected demand for copper, nickel, and other electric vehicle metals fueled by U.S. climate law, S&P Global said in a report on Tuesday, ahead of the legislation's one-year anniversary. The landmark U.S. Inflation Reduction Act offers tax breaks for EVs, solar panels, and other renewable energy products made from metals extracted in the United States or countries with U.S. free trade deals. Metals from, quote, foreign entities of concern, end quote, including China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran will be banned in 2025. That has sparked a race among manufacturers to lock down supply. Well, it's almost like sanctions, isn't it? Metals from foreign entities of concern. So any metal from China or Russia or North Korea or Iran, I mean, again, we think of the banning of germanium and gallium out of China and the concern around that, well, the U.S. is doing that unilaterally in 2025, according to the Inflation Reduction Act. So that is interesting. And we have a quote from Dan Jurgen, S&P Global's vice chairman and co-author of the report. I believe he's the famous oil analyst. Quote, the energy transition is really heating up the pressures on mineral supplies, and the IRA is adding a lot to those challenges. End quote. By 2035, demand for lithium, nickel and cobalt is expected to be 23 times higher than in 2021, with copper demand doubling over the same period the study found. All of the metals are widely used in EVs and other electronics. So demand is gonna be, I mean, it's hard to believe. is gonna be 23 times higher, yet we're cutting off China and Russia is a major exporter of metals. So is China as a processor of metals. This is a pretty big deal. Now, Jürgen also added, quote, the IRA is working as intended as a magnet for investment. So maybe it's working. It's almost like, I mean, but this is almost like World War II type footing here. This is a real mobilization. And finally, Jürgen said, quote, the global trade in minerals will increasingly reflect the competition between the U.S. and China as well as Europe, for those supplies. Mineral supply is going to be increasingly entangled with geopolitics. A refrain we have been speaking here on a weekly basis. Continuing on, China's low copper inventories data belie sufficient supply. So we were discussing this last week, how I had seen a story or comment somewhere that China's copper inventories were very low. This is Reuters mining.com, we're getting some confirmation on that net long positions of copper on the London Metal Exchange are at a six-month high. And this is something we've also been noting after they got to a critical level in late June, early July. The LME has really, the copper contract seems to be continuing to grow, which is what they're saying here. So let me just restart this. Net long positions of copper on the LME are at a six-month high partly fueled by low Chinese copper inventories data, but industry sources say this signal, often as seen as bullish, isn't reflecting the reality on the ground. So we continue to try and figure out what's going on in the copper market. China is the world's top copper consumer and combined inventory in the Shanghai Futures Exchange and Chinese bonded warehouses were 110,000 metric tons on August 11th, down 53% year on year, An equivalent to just under three days of consumption. Now, that gives us a very interesting clue because if I bring up the LME, I will bring it up right now because they're saying 110,000 metric tons is only three days of consumption in China. Now, if we go, just for context here, if we go to the LME's website, where I can log in and get us the number. I don't know if there's 110,000 tons of copper. Let's just look here. And again, I'm not a, you know, expert commodity trader or anything, but what I see here is an opening stock of 95,000 tons, right? And live warrants, so this is how much is available. Is So almost all of it, 94,750. So almost all of that 95,000 tons is available to buy. Now they're saying China's Shanghai's future exchange and Chinese bonded warehouses were 110,000 metric tons, so about 15,000 tons more, but that's, you know, critically low for China. So again, I'm not an expert on this, but these are what the numbers say here. While future prices in London and Shanghai have fallen to multi-week lows, some investors have been building long positions based on LME data, in anticipation that prices will turn higher In coming months, because China's inventories are so low, and on hopes the Chinese government will roll out more aggressive economic stimulus measures. You know, a lot of people are waiting for this Chinese stimulus, and I think we saw like a 0.1% cut. Was it the other day? Was it yesterday or Sunday night? My sense is, and this is just purely speculation and observation, but my sense is that Xi is trying to deflate the property market. So Xi, therefore, or the Chinese Communist Party, seems to be very reluctant to lower rates, because the more, of course, rates are lowered, generally, the higher property prices go. So that is a hypothetical explanation as to their reluctance to roll out stimulus and why they might not. And there's also the sense that why should we bail out the West's economies with stimulus there's probably that too we have a quote here from goldman sachs in a report dated august 11th quote with such limited inventory cover in china and on western exchanges we see significant right tail risk to the copper price if for example there is a material supply disruption or upside surprise in china policy support announcements quote indeed our dialogue with the investment community so far in q3 suggests interest in copper downside has now dissipated and buying copper dips is the predominant strategy. And one more quote here from Zhang Kaimin, a purchasing manager at Hubei Shidai Refined Copper Technology, a copper rod maker that uses around 10,000 tons of refined copper a month. Quote, copper stock data is no longer important for us to assess market supply and demand. Spot supply is plentiful in the market and it is easy to source material as long as you pay a good price. So, no problems. Another explanation here, inventories also fell because many Chinese smelters recently invested more into manufacturing value-added products using some of their own refined metal, reducing the need to send supplies into warehouses, said a copper tube maker. There's also a more direct delivery between smelters and consumers, said the person, who declined to be named as they were not authorized to speak to the media, Quote, low inventory is basically a normal market, and the market liquidity is not as good as before, said another source at a copper smelter. Continuing on, trickle of LME zinc deliveries turns into a flood. So a ton of zinc is coming onto the London Metal Exchange here. What started in July as a trickle of metal into the market of last resort has turned into an August flood with 76,000 metric tons placed on LME warrant since the start of last week. So a ton of zinc has come on the market. That was Reuters via Mining.com, and related to that, City buys large amount of zinc for a lucrative LME warehouse deal. And this is Reuters via Mining.com. Citibank has bought large amounts of zinc on the London Metal Exchange and arranged a lucrative deal to store the metal in LME-approved warehouses. Two sources with knowledge of the matter said, while the quantity bought by City is difficult to determine, zinc stocks in LME warehouses in Singapore have jumped 54 percent to 141,000 metric tons over the past two days, the highest since March 2022. A few stories here on Cadelco. Let's just go through the headlines here. Cadelco taps new chief amid push to grow output. Also Reuters via mining.com. Chile's Cadelco, the world's largest copper producer, announced on Friday is named Ruben Alvarado, is the company's new chief executive, an executive who boasts executive experience in mining, airlines, and port management. The company said in a statement Alvarado had been picked after an exhaustive search to replace Andres Sugaret, who stepped down in mid-June for personal reasons and unspecified complexities in running the firm. The shakeup at the top comes as Cadelco battles to boost production of the red metal from its lowest level in 25 years, while also cutting ballooning costs. So Cadelco continues to struggle here. Codelco eyes recovering production of 1.7 million tons per year by 2030. This is Reuters via mining.com. That just a headline. And another headline here, BHP, Cadelco, and Freeport vie for title of biggest copper producer. So now BHP and Freeport are on the heels of Cadelco. There's a three-way battle underway. And these countries like Peru, we saw when it lost the title, of second biggest copper exporter to the DRC, to the Democratic Republic of Congo, there was like some pushback in Peru. Like people weren't happy about losing their position. There is a certain amount of pride in these positions here that's very important to these countries. So what's happening with Cadelco is a pretty big deal for Chile. And this is Bloomberg News, if you mining.com. After buying Australia's Oz Minerals, BHP Group is challenging for the mantle as biggest copper producer at a time when leader Cadelco has seen output slide as it battles to overhaul aging operations in Chile. In fact, the Melbourne-based firm produced more than Cadelco last quarter. So BHP may challenge Cadelco, And here's a quote from Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Grant Spore. Quote, the risk is if Cadelco doesn't pick up production in 2024 and BHP does... Then they could overtake the mighty Cadelco. Freeport McMoran briefly moved into first spot last year as it ramped up underground mining in Indonesia, although the US firm has seen its share of output fall after handing over half that asset as a condition for signing a new contract. Spore has Freeport in third in the years ahead, with Cadelco just staving off BHP for the crown. So, a three way battle underway. And just a couple of more headlines here as we wrap up. BHP Ventures invests in copper extraction technology companies, $30 million fundraising. So this is another big deal. And maybe something that could upset this copper bull market is if they have breakthroughs in extraction technology. And so BHP Ventures is investing over $30 million in Sabo a Chilean advanced copper extraction technology company. So very interesting there. And a couple other stories here. Ecuadorians opt to restrict oil and mining ahead of runoff vote. So Bloomberg News via Mining.com, Ecuadorians voted to shut a major oil field in the Amazon region and ban new mining concessions near Quito, sending a clear message to the next government on prioritizing environmental protection over natural resource development. Now with all these problems with copper in Chile with Codelco don't forget the government of Chile just nationalized the lithium industry or semi-nationalized however you want to interpret it and who did they give the keys to they gave it to Codelco to run the lithium so a follow-up story there more than 50 firms want in on new lithium mining model in Chile so one wonders if there is something amiss at Cadelco in terms of the copper, and that may be part of the reason they nationalized the lithium is because this copper issue could be bigger than is being presented. Again, it's got a political impact in these countries, is my impression, if Cadelco all of a sudden, you know, is running out of copper. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at Metal prices. to metal prices. Gold is trading at $1,929.40 per ounce, that is $9 lower than last week. Silver is trading higher at $22.88 per ounce, that is 16 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $909.67 per ounce, that is $9 higher than last week, and palladium is trading lower at $1,234.68 per ounce. That is $29 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading a penny lower at $3.72 per pound. Iron ore is trading $2 higher at $106.48 per pound. Aluminum is unchanged at $0.97 per pound. Lead is $0.03 higher at $0.98 per pound. Nickel is $0.02 lower at $9.03 per pound. Tin is also lower at $11.46 per pound. That is $0.54 lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium is back below $30 at $29.86 per kilogram. That is $6 lower than last week. The previous low we saw was at $24.93. So it's going to be interesting to see if lithium tests that low after the massive run-up it had in previous months. Uranium is 25 cents higher at $57 even. So it continues to steadily inch higher. And finally, zinc is 2 cents lower at $1.05 per pound. Zooming out, I would say a pretty mixed bag out there. Gold down, silver platinum and palladium up. Industrial metals, mixed bag, aluminum even, lead higher, nickel lower, so just a complete mixed bag. If anything, I would say the standouts are uranium, which continues to steadily move higher, and lithium, which is back below $30, and those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Kalen Burrand. ASM consultant and engineer and founder and director of Young Mining Professionals Arizona to the show. He is based out of Tucson, Arizona, and offered an excellent interview on Young Mining Professionals and really the perspective of young people, and as well as on his unusually passionate background in geology and mining at a very young age. Uh, When I looked up his LinkedIn before I started the show, I thought, this guy is going to be running this industry. He is 22. It's a great interview. You'll learn a lot. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, Kalen Brand. ASM consultant and engineer and founder and director of Young Mining Professionals Arizona. Kaylin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Adrian, for having me. I'm very excited to be here on the the Northern Mining Podcast. You guys reach a, a wide audience, and I'm really excited to be able to connect with everyone.
0: Well, I'm thrilled that you were willing to come on. You're recommended by a mutual friend, and I'm just looking for new voices out here. You know, the mining industry, Likes to ask itself oftentimes how it's going to attract young people. So maybe I thought to myself, we should actually have a younger person on. Kaylin, do you mind mentioning your age? And you don't have to on the show here, but do you mind?
1: No, oh, no, not at all. So yeah, I'm I'm 22, so still in the the young range.
0: <laughs> okay, awesome. Now we were just talking beforehand here. So you actually started in the mining industry at 16, is that correct? And what made you interested? Has it been a passion since you were five years old? Uh, just tell us how you got interested and how you got started.
1: Yeah, you're right. I did start when I was 16. I was I was working at a small scale mine in Colorado, way high up in the, the Rockies as an underground mucker. And how I got there, I was always interested in rocks growing up. I grew up on a ranch in Colorado, doing a lot of work outside, building fences, herding cattle, et cetera, et cetera. So I was always really interested in the landscape and I was always interested in what was below my feet, which were rocks. And so from that moment on, I knew I wanted to go into geology. I knew I wanted to go into mining in some form or fashion. And so actually for that first job that I had at at the underground mine in Southern Colorado, I actually, the two summers before that, I sent letters to the mine manager asking him if I could start a position that I wasn't even paid for. And it wasn't until I was 16 and could actually get some pay that he would let me up onto site.
0: Incredible. So at 16, I remember I got my first <laughs> job when I was like actually 13 in a comic store and they would pay me with comics.
1: How did that all work? Were your parents pleased? Was it a tough sell or were they thrilled that you were already working? Um, It's a good question. I don't know if my parents knew much about mining when I went into it to have a strong opinion on it. So I think that they were Just excited that I was interested in something and that I had something I was passionate about and that I was pursuing it and people were paying me to pursue it. And so I think for them, it was just a a positive experience for me um, without having much knowledge or fear about what might happen.
0: Okay, excellent. And just a final kind of question on this origin story of sorts. As you know, you know, mining isn't always the most popular sector of the global economy. Was there pushback at all from your friends? Were you in an environment where it was actually cool? Like, how did you deal with that sort of side of things?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question, Adrian. Um, so, I mean, growing up where I grew up, it was, it was all ranchers. And so mining wasn't incredibly positive. Some of the ranchers had their land lost to miners and had water polluted by some of the abandoned mines in Colorado. And so it was not very popular for me to be interested in mining. I wouldn't say that I had many friends that had explicitly pushed back on it, but I think that there was a lot of confusion. A lot of people weren't aware or didn't have a good understanding of what it meant when I said I wanted to go into mining. Their only thoughts were, OK, is he going to come and pollute our water or take our land? So I would say that there was more confusion and, and a slight negativity, but I never got you know explicit pushback.
0: So tell us a little bit then about what you actually started with. Were you actually working in a mine doing kind of like the physical labor or was it a desk job? Like what were you doing?
1: Yeah, so it was a small mine way high up in the Rockies. I was at about 12,000 feet, if I remember correctly. I believe it was the highest mine in the U.S. And it was a small mine, so there was only about five or six underground miners. And basically, my job was to go underground and do physical labor. Most of the time I was, I was just mucking underground, helping, helping the older guys out and whatever way I could. It was a great experience for me. I feel like it was the first time I really learned how to do really hard work.
0: (laughs) I believe it. And you know, there's something to be said for when you're a 16 year old guy kind of being around other, you know, dudes, it's probably an opportunity to grow up a little faster than you might have without doing that.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I I was living alone at the time. I was about four hours or so from where I originally grew up. And so I was living alone. I was working all the time. And I, I do. I feel like I went from being 16 to being 21. And it, was, <laughs> it was a great experience, though.
0: Yeah, that is great. And what about school? I mean, you continued school or was this during summer holidays? How did that work?
1: This was over the summer, so I did it for two years before I went to college. And I would go out as soon as school ended. I remember I left my junior to senior year of high school, um, so my last year of high school here in the U.S. I left the day after um, school let out, and then I came back the day before school resumed. And it was my favorite part of the year,
0: like when you could go to the mine. Yes, yeah, that is great—a true passion of yours. So, okay, so now. Fast forward a little bit. So I guess what happened next? I mean, you're only 22. So I wonder, like, is there quite a bit that's happened in between now and then? Or did you you know, start doing things like, you know, starting the Young Mining Professionals Arizona? Take us through what happened next and how you got to where you are now.
1: Yeah. So after working underground, I, I enjoyed it, but I learned quickly that I did not want to be mucking my entire life. And so I knew like, I, I need to go to college, I need to get higher degrees. And so that's how I landed down in Arizona, going to the the University of Arizona, um, because I have both a mining engineering and a geology degree, um, which were the two fields I was most interested in. And so at that point, that was when I got first introduced to kind of the large scale industrial mining, what we're all familiar with. And so when I first had that introduction, it was, it was through various conferences and, and other things. And I, I felt like, there was a big opportunity in the American market space to be able to really professionalize what what young miners are doing and really help them advance and, and globalize in terms of, of where they're able to work, the people that they interact with, and as well as the, the skills and knowledge that they're able to come across. And so seeing that opportunity was when I got in contact with Stephen Stewart, who was at the time working with young mining professionals and asked him, you know, I really wanna start the first American chapter of Young Mining Professionals, which it took him some convincing to do because I was much younger than the rest of the other chapter leaders. But then he ended up uh, helping me out and we got Young Mining Professionals Arizona started. And that was in 2020, about a month before the pandemic.
0: (laughs) Okay, so you started that and I guess you were still going to school. I mean, you're 22, have you finished college?
1: Yeah, I finished in May. But I'm staying on to do a a PhD, actually, because I do a lot of consulting work. And so I can do a PhD on what I'm consulting on already. So I'm basically getting paid to do a PhD and kind of doing what I would normally do. So I'm graduated, but still technically in school.
0: Okay, excellent. So how has it gone then? I mean, you started Young Mining Professionals Arizona a month before the pandemic started. So how did all that go and how is it going now? How is Young Mining Professionals Arizona?
1: Yeah, so... I mean, starting in the pandemic, it was interesting. Again, that was an experience kind of like working underground where I feel like I really learned how to be an adult and learned how to be a leader very fast. And so navigating through the pandemic was was interesting. But now, you know, three years later, we're at over 600 members. We have a strong committee working with us. Um, we're able to work with a lot of the leading majors down here in the southwest part of the U.S. So like Freeport, Nevada Gold Mines, Rio Tinto, Resolution Copper and some of those other big brands, which is, is really great for us. It means that we're actually fulfilling our goal and being able to, to reach a lot of young miners across the Southwest and be able to really connect them with Young Mining Professionals International Network.
0: Okay, fascinating. And I assume the miners are kind of talent scouting as they form these relationships. like, what are they looking for and how do they
1: become involved in the sense like, what is the relationship that you guys have? That's a good question. So there is a, a sense of doing some talent scouting but there's also a, a big part of it, in my opinion, is actually doing a lot more of the, the public outreach and also being able to help. I would use the word actually inspire a lot of, of younger people to stay with the mining industry. A major issue that the mining industry has here is that they're getting a lot of young people coming out of college that take you know their first job in mining because it's high paying. That's a big bonus. But after they take that first job, uh, after a few months or a few years, they end up leaving the mining industry. Uh, and so we have a lot of young talent, but a lot of them don't stay in mining. There's various reasons that they think that this is happening. And one of them is that they don't have a strong sense of community. They feel kind of outcasted. Uh, so young mining professionals for them is a way to be able to help their young miners connect with other people in, in other parts of the industry and in other parts of the Southwest and really form that community. And so I think in addition to the talent scouting, it's also you know retaining talent.
0: It's almost like opportunity to make things socially fun. Yeah. It's not just some job that you talk to other people about and they look at you kind of funny. It's a whole uh, social network, so to speak.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, I mean, in addition to that, we also offer them things like helping the miners get new skills by, you know, connecting with different people and in different fields. Like we do a lot of of tours of other mine sites um, and I've heard from several of our members that that's. Very helpful for them to understand that there's more than one way that they can go about mining um, and that it's, it's really helped them perform better in their careers. And so I think it's altogether, I mean, really, you know, mining professionals, our job, at least in the way I see it, is is helping to serve the mining industry and serve the young people in it. And so, you know, we're doing whatever we can to address the, the needs of, of the Southwest mining industry.
0: Okay, fascinating. One of the things I think of, like whenever I was part of university clubs, let's say, which is kind of analogous, kind of similar, not not exactly, but you know, kind of similar. There was always a, kind of a sense that the older crowd or the establishment kind of would be doing things better, that there was kind of obvious things when you're younger that aren't necessarily so obvious to people who've been in the industry for 20 or 30 years. So I guess what I'm wondering is, is this like a two-way street like are you guys also giving speeches
1: at these events where they learn things like these minors or not that's a really good question i would say to a degree that there is uh, some of that two-way communication a lot of times we'll we'll have speakers from older groups and i've had this comment several times after after having them speak to our group that you know they've networked with a lot of the the members of our organization and that they felt like they've really they've come away with it and with a better understanding of, of what the younger generations want, but also a better understanding of what the possibilities might be for the mining industry. And so kind of to take like a, a concrete example of that, we had a, a senior mineral processing engineer talk with with some of our members from from the group. And I remember him speaking to me afterwards and he was explaining to me that he didn't previously understand how much and how willing the the younger groups wanted to be able to mine all the different materials out of a rock that they were so much more interested in being able to really get what some people call like whole rock mining being able to extract everything that's potentially valuable out of it versus you know the the key commodities that are core to the business right and so that's something that I've seen continuing to grow in popularity down here. Um, and I think that having a group like Young Mind Professionals to be able to really coalesce that community and send some of these stronger messages through that, we're really able to make an impact.
0: Well, I mean, that totally sounds like a paradigm shift. I mean, it's such an obvious thing in a sense, but I've never thought about that in my entire life. And I've been kind of <laughs> in this business for 11 years. I mean, but once yeah. you say it, it's like, of course, why aren't we trying to get every single little mineral out of a rock? So, I mean, this is kind of like exactly to my point. This is the kind of thing. So that is fascinating. And what else do you think the mining industry should be doing or could be doing differently that maybe it's not doing now?
1: Yeah. So when I think about the mining industry on, on a broad scale, it's tough for me to make you know, really prescriptive measures for the mining industry overall. But I do think that one thing that is, is causing the mining industry to lag in some areas is having such a strong risk aversion and risk aversion in terms of, of technology and innovation, because we've been pioneers in a lot of technology, but that was prior to you know the 1970s, 1980s when a lot more of the regulation came down. And so as a reaction to that regulation, I think that we became a lot more risk averse, a lot less willing to experiment, kind of just stuck with what worked in the 1970s and 80s, and it's just continued on. And I think that a lot of young people, especially those that are coming from different fields and not directly from you know, mining engineering or mining geology, that they really want to bring some of these new innovations that they have in, in their other work in other parts of various industries and bring them into mining. But the mining industry overall is just so risk averse that they aren't willing to even consider some of these ideas. And so another example, and sorry, all my examples are mineral processing related because that's that's my focus. But there's various forms of ion exchange in terms of being able to extract you know, more copper, iron, whatever else out of wastewater. And that's a technology that has been well tested, well studied. It's done pilot tests in all sorts of, of plants in other parts of the world, uh, yet it has very little application within the mining industry as it stands right now. And so to me, that's just a a huge missed opportunity. And, you know, some of the reasons why it hasn't been adopted from what I understand is simply the, the want to maintain the systems that have been working in the past, that there's that risk aversion. They're worried that if they introduce this new system, there might be different regulations that may not be able to maintain their water quality. And so, Having that strong risk aversion and just continuing to stay with what has worked in the past to, to meet regulation is, to me, it's okay. You know, you can continue running your business that way, but if you want to really, really improve mining and take it to the next level, add an extra 10% or whatever to your profit, that you need to lower that risk aversion in some of these new technologies that are able to, to come into the market space and start adopting them.
0: So. Do you guys also interface with, say, policymakers at a certain level, or like, is there ever any like Congress people that are ever ever interested in showing up, or or people related to their offices or anything like that?
1: You know, we've we've actually started working on this in the past couple of months. It hasn't been a big focus for young mine professionals overall, but our chapter has recently started working with the National Mining Association, who's based out of Washington D.C. and does interface with Congress and we we started working with them on you know how can we get more young people into mining uh, because right now uh, particularly in, in north america we have you know the critical minerals crisis and being able to to nearshore a lot of our minerals production and in order to do that we obviously need more young people and so we've just recently started working with the national mining association and as as well as starting to reach out to, to more local government agencies bodies etc in order to be able to help build a better bridge between young people regulation in the mining industry
0: yeah because as you mentioned this risk aversion it seems like you know policymakers maybe need to be brought into the conversation and maybe this is fantasy land to get to get all these people (laughs) into the conversation
1: but in my fantasy land that kind of seems like what needs to happen right yeah for sure i think that we do need to have different policy that allows i guess i would say that trust mining companies more to be able to test and experiment with some of these new ideas i think that as you said that a lot of the policies has been reactive to some of the you know tragedies that have happened within mining and i think that the policymakers need to understand that you know they can put more trust in the mining industry to take these calculated experiments um, and i think that we're starting to see some of that come through um in the us i'm really excited about the the good samaritan act which Should be allowing for, I think it's seven different pilot projects to touch abandoned mine lands, uh, which previously was just something that nobody would do because of the potential liability. And so we're really urging for more of the, the, the policymakers to talk with miners to be able to allow these experiments to occur.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, you know, in theory, like everybody loves young people, right? Especially if you're Congress or your business, it's kind of popular to like. So in a weird way you guys kind of have a weirdly unique, I don't know if platform's the right word, but space to invite these people in, oddly enough, and to inject new ideas. I mean, so it's quite exciting, actually. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I just completely agree. I think, you know, for the mining industry, for policymakers, for everyone who's involved with mining, I think that young mining professionals really does offer them a good space to be able to talk to one another. And as well as invite in a lot of these new ideas. I think, as as you're saying, you know, young people generally are popular. Everyone wants their support. You know, they're supposed to be sponges for whatever ideas. Uh, and so, I think uh, it is a, it's a good opportunity for all these groups to come together and you know weigh their ideas against one another and gather support from our cohort.
0: I do want to touch on the ASM consulting that you do. So ASM, as you were explaining to me before the show, is artisanal and small-scale mining. Is that correct? So could, could yeah. you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I mentioned I started working in a, in a small-scale mine, and so that's stayed with me this this entire time. Uh, and that's that's my focus where I, I put a lot of my technical work in is, is working with artisanal and small scale miners. And so artisanal and small scale mining basically includes everybody that's not, you know, the the large scale industrial mines based in Toronto, the US, Europe, wherever. And so a lot of them are in kind of an informal space. And I do want to draw a clear boundary that, you know, I don't work with like illegal mines or a lot of the bad actors that are in this space. Uh, just like any industry, there are a lot of bad actors in in the artisanal mining space but i work with a lot of people in in developing countries primarily as well as here in the us actually that are you know developing small deposits and what's interesting to me about it is that they're able to put a new uh, business model onto mining where they're able to to mine these small deposits in a way that's really economically feasible and for for that type of scale is actually quite profitable and so I work with them to be able to improve their mining practices.
0: And you've worked in places, as far as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, as far as Peru and Africa. Is is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I've I've worked in Liberia uh, in West Africa, Peru. I've worked here in the U.S. Uh, in various places. And I've also done some consulting work in like Suriname and a few other parts of West Africa. I'm looking to do a lot of expansion. I'm really excited to have a, a new project with a, a large scale mining company uh, actually to help them improve their community relations with a lot of the artisanal small scale miners on their concessions. Um, and really, I see that as actually a, a major opportunity for a lot of large scale mines is to start leveraging these these local miners that are a lot of times are on their concessions, leveraging them in order to do more exploration work and able to improve their community relations or even to do some type of co-processing. I really see it as a, as a the whole sector overall as a major opportunity for the mining industry.
0: Just as we're wrapping up here kind of finally, so where do things stand? Like in a lot of these projects, are they almost trying to get rid of the artisanal miners in some cases? Are they like seen as kind of a nuisance? Is that often the problem?
1: Yeah. So from my understanding, a lot of times what the primary issue is, is that, you know, the mining company has their concession. So they own their land in in whatever country it is. And so when they have these artisanal small-scale miners who, who sometimes are, are immigrating because of the project, but other times they're there prior to the project's existence, they're on this land, they're on their concessions of the large-scale mining company. And where that creates issues is that anything that happens on that land is the liability of the mining company. And so if those small-scale miners aren't doing you know, uh, proper environmental work or if one of them gets injured or dies, the liability is on the mining company. And that is a, a, obviously a major issue. And so they're either trying to have them work in other parts of the mine or giving them parts of land or pushing them off. I know in South Africa in the past couple of decades, it's actually gotten violent a few times. And so for a lot of large scale miners working in these, these foreign environments, it's a major issue for them to be able to, to mitigate.
0: And so finally here then, what is the solution in your view?
1: Uh, that's the million-dollar question. You know, I think solutions are going to be context-dependent in a lot of cases. It's going to depend on the culture of the area. It's going to depend on how many miners there are. But I think that in in many cases, that large-scale mining companies can start to work with a lot of these small-scale miners and help them develop into. Uh, more formal entrepreneurs. And that can be through, like I mentioned, uh, like co-processing some of their ores. And that brings benefit both to the large-scale mining company and the small-scale miners. There's also a benefit in actually using them for doing exploration work because a lot of these small-scale miners, they're going out and they know the area better than a lot of the geologists do. And so they can help them expand their reserves, find new veins or whatever else they're looking for. And so I think that the idea of cooperating a lot more with these artisanal small-scale miners and, and taking less of a defensive stance is the best way forward
0: you know it's kind of reminiscent i can't remember there was a very famous egyptologist or archaeologist excavating ancient egyptian artifacts in like the 1800s i think it's petri mm-hmm. and what he would do if i have the name right is because there's always this problem that the say the you know artisanal archaeologists shall we say well take the artifact and then we'll sell it on their own and so what he would do is he would weigh the work and then he'd give them the equivalent in gold like he would weigh the artifact and so just as a kind of like a way and then that actually secured kept them out of you know anonymous hands and the underground market so so it's all, yeah. all very interesting and it almost seems like they so hiring uh, these people in a certain sort of way and kind of meeting them halfway seems to maybe be where you're going with this.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting example. Actually, uh, I had never heard about that, but I'll have to I'll have to read more about that. But yeah, you're right. That's really what I'm advocating for here is is being able to to do more cooperative work with them, meet them in the middle, try to find ways that are win win situations, both for the miners and the mining company. Obviously, if we can find and start implementing a lot more win win situations, everyone's better
0: for it. Absolutely, and a beautiful note to leave on. Kalen Burrand, ASM consultant and engineer and founder and director of Young Mining Professionals Arizona. Thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on the Northern Miner podcast. Well, thank you, Agent, for having me. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you once again to Kalen Burrand, consultant and engineer and founder and director of Young Mining Professionals Arizona, PhD candidate. He's doing it all in style and he's not wasting a moment. So I look forward to having him back on the show. It's gonna be really interesting to hear what he's up to next. If you wanna learn about the Canadian Mining Symposium, simply go to events.northernminer.com where you will see the incredible guests that we have there as well as companies presenting. Thank you, dear listener, for once again, listening to the show. If you wanna help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.